I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers on Gun Violence. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the gun violence that is surging in New York City this summer compared to last year. A one-year-old baby was shot and killed in a stroller. He is New York City's youngest murder victim in 2020. Another tragedy, Brandon Hendricks, a college-bound basketball star who was gunned down two days after his graduation. What is behind this surge in gun violence? What will it take to stop it? And what will it take to get a ceasefire? That's what we're talking about with my panel here on Street Soldiers. Joining me is Aisha Seku. She's a founder and CEO of Street Corner Resources. Aisha, great to have you with us. It's wonderful to be here. And thank you for staying on top of the issue of gun violence. Thank you. I appreciate it. Also joining us is Dr. Darren Porter. He's a former NYPD lieutenant and criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Marky. He's the host of Black News 102. It's a news channel on YouTube. And he was also formerly incarcerated. And he's currently working with youth on the streets. Marky, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Aisha, let me start with you on this. In terms of the street violence, you have been fighting this good fight for a very, very long time. What do you see happening this summer? Why is this so different? You know, um, one, you know, the fight has been long and steady and we, we have had and I want people to be hopeful because we had a surge of violence in the 90s <laughs> and then we saw it break down in, in the early 2000 and then now we're seeing an uptick again. And so that means that it is possible for us to create peace in our community because we've had it, right? Uh, but the uptick that we see now, I think has a lot to do with the, the stress level of what's going on right now with COVID-19, the quarantine, uh, people being unemployed. And I, I think that even uh, the gambling that's allowed in our community that was kind of uh, broken up before now, you know, th those games would be broken up because we know that those games end in violence often because of uh, people betting with no money, what they call ass betting, that kind of thing. And people are involved in some things that maybe before COVID, they had not been involved in. We see people coming out of, out of, out of desperation and boredom and whatever. I mean, Darren, um, when you look at the, you, you worked on the streets for many years in various capacities. Uh, still involved with a lot that's going on with the police department. Darren, um, what is so different about this summer? Well, I think it's multi-layered. Um, we have to look at the first component in a lack of police resources in the communities. That, is, that proves to be a significant component because we no longer have the staffing that we've had in the past to address these issues of gun violence that are plaguing the communities of color in particular. The second component, there's been somewhat of an anti-police sentiment in connection with the death of George Floyd. So there's been somewhat of a state of acrimony that's been plaguing us as New Yorkers. So when we look at the groundswell that's attached to the death of George Floyd, coupled with the lack of resources within a police department, the culmination of two has set forth a precedence that's resulted in gun violence that's plaguing the communities of color and the city of New York as a result. Marky, in terms of the, what you see happening on the streets, tell us, what, tell us what you see happening as you go around, you film these different events, you, you're, you're at these community events and where some of these tragedies are happening. What are you doing? Well, I believe that there's no uh, communication belief between the police force and our communities. I believe that the police is basically just coming through the communities, watching what's going on and just doing a little drive by. I believe that they, if they communicated with the kids and with our community much more, 
that it can bring down, you know, the uh, tension be- between not only the police department, but also between the different blocks or gangs or things that's going on with our community. Darren, what about that? You guys feel free to jump in, please. Darren, what do you say to that about the police? Because they, they, we've seen them recently. They're, they're starting these family days. They're doing town halls with the community. They're trying to be out there more in a non-enforcement capacity. What do you see about that? I do agree with Mark in connection with the lack of communication between police and community. That police and community relationships should be symbiotic. There should be a seamless transition of information that flows into police departments. But in the wake of the current state of acrimony that's plaguing the city, there's since um, been a, a closing of the borders, so to speak. The communities have somewhat closed ranks on, dissemin- on the dissemination of information of the police. The police are somewhat feel as if they're under siege and the lack of communication between the two entities is growing a greater propensity for violence. We have eight and, a, eight and a half million New Yorkers that live in the city of New York. However, we only have a police department of 38,000 sworn officers. 38,000 sworn officers can in no way, shape, or form do the job to protect that community or the communities of a whole of New York. Therefore, it's necessary that we, we gather the intelligence from the communities. And I believe that just based on the state of acrimony, we've closed the corridors on both that sides. Conversation. I, Aisha, you, you, you were part of the effort. You led the effort as, as the Harlem outpost for the cure violence, the citywide cure violence movement to try to take over certain street corners to let people know the gun violence wouldn't be, wouldn't be tolerated. But okay, we need to take a short break. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. When we come back, where are all these guns coming from? Stay tuned. Yo, what up? This your homie Ace Hood, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real poly tricks, and real people only on Hot 97. I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers on Gun Violence. Joining me is Aisha Seku. She's a founder and CEO of Street Corner Resources. Aisha, great to have you with us. It's wonderful to be here, and thank you for staying on top of the issue of gun violence. Thank you. I appreciate it. Also joining us is Dr. Darren Porter. He's a former NYPD lieutenant and criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Marky. He's the host of Black News 102. It's a news channel on YouTube, and he was also formerly incarcerated, and he's currently working with youth on the streets. Marky, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. How is it possible to actually deal with the problem if people don't want to work with the police? I'll, I'll tell you, Lisa, as you, as you know, we've been occupying the corners since about 2005, uh, kind of off and on as needed, but uh, most consistently over the last six uh, years. And so one of the things that we've seen in terms of police and community relationships is that the police will present one image in the daylight and on the, in the night and uh, on these back streets and sometimes not even the back streets on the main boulevards, seven Lenox and Malcolm X Boulevard and uh, Adam Clayton Power Boulevard and other boulevards here that are named after black men, black men would be beat down by the police. You cannot expect to fix a gushing wound with a Band-Aid. So jumping double dutch and playing basketball and having a party is not the answer to better policing. What is the answer to better policing? Really looking at what are the things and who are the people creating the problem? 
All of those officers who are creating the problem, who have been beating on people, whether in plain clothes or in blue uniform, need to be pulled. Their jackets need to be or foul, need to be gone through, and we need to remove them from the community. If they don't want to serve the community that they are in, they should be taken out. The improvement of the community comes with, uh, we had uh, the other night we occupied and where they were thinking a high level barbecue was gonna happen because it was on Instagram. There's an officer out to Vary, and I have to give the props where the props are due. He stayed in communication about moving cars. I asked him not to have the police come out of the vehicles into the cookout since the cookout was being allowed as long as it was under control and there was no criminal activity going on than to let people just be. I talked to the OGs. The OGs was holding the ground. They said, we got this. And together we kept a peaceful cookout. That's how communities should work. It's not necessary to come in and be overly aggressive with people pouring water on grills and things like that. So there was an agreement not between us all together, but just working together. Communicate. There was communication. Communicate. Marky, Marky, what, what about what about that? Like the vibe, because especially a lot of the gun violence, they say even though there haven't been that many arrests, is attributable to younger people in their late twi- late teens. Some even like middle teens and even very young teenagers. What do you, what do you see about the police uh, piece in this? Well, I, I I feel that um the police, as far as with the communication that. Like when I was growing up, we had the PAL in which us as young kids, we communicated with the police. But the kids these days is big on the stop snitching thing. So if someone see you talking to the police, they always want to like, yo, what you over there talking to them about? So I believe like I have police in my community that I talk to and I'm able to go up to and speak to and speak about the community. I'm not snitching. I'm just telling them what's going on within the community and how he can help. And also to bring his partners and get them aboard. So you do have police officers out there that are trying that's trying to work with the community. But there's those officers that don't want to come and approach us. None, none of the kids these days are going to go out their way to say something to an officer. The officer has to pull up and they call, get out, not make it like it's an arrest, but get out and just talk to the kids. And if they do that every day, us, we, the kids, we would start to believe in the police officers and starting to trust in them and they could trust in us. And then it becomes like a normal thing. Darren, Darren, in terms of the pressures on the police right now, give us the police perspective from that, from the other side, from officers, where they've been after weeks and weeks and weeks and months of protests, you know, being in the center of it. Some officers cross the line. There's much faster discipline. But what's the whole mood of the police? Because there's a lot of, a lot of talk on the streets about Cops not enforcing the laws the way that they used to when it's needed. Well, in in the climate of police reform, there's been several components of legislation that have been introduced in connection with receding police officers' ability to produce or partake in certain enforcement activities. One of the things that recently came to fruition is the diaphragm bill. It was specifically focused on a chokehold. However, it became far more abstract and it didn't just focus on a specific part of um, placing pressure to one's larynx. It now held an officer accountable on a criminal level if they, if he or she was to touch a person's diaphragm. The diaphragm is merely the area that goes north of the waistline. So if an officer touches someone's chest, if an officer touches someone's back, then that officer can be held criminal liable, cr- criminally liable in a criminal court. So, so, are, you, so are you saying that, are you saying that you believe that a lot of the cops that are out on the street if they can avoid a situation or getting involved in a situation, they're going to avoid it right now? Well, I was just kind of going through the culmination as to where the morale is. Officers in many cases feel that 
they are taking the appropriate action. But if they were to use force against someone's chest, they would subsequently be disciplined in a court of law. I believe that the majority of officers want to do the right thing, but they're kind of building the plane as they learn how to fly it in the wake of the recent legislation. And so I think there's more of a training issue that's coming to the forefront and how officers can effectively adapt to the new provisions that have been introduced. Aisha, I want to get your take on that because you look like you're not buying that. Right, I'm not. Uh, Brother Quetcher, all respect uh, due, but the bottom line is, is that you know that it's illegal to choke somebody. We had to get legislation to ban it, but it is illegal. And a lot of the behavior on the part of the police, I've filmed it, I've witnessed it, I've worked with young people who were part of it, who've had that kind of violence come toward them. I think that basically the police need to do a better scrutiny, psychological scrutiny on uh, the officers, that it's not just because you wanna be a police, your father was a police officer, your grandfather was one, and now you become one. Actually, what happens is, is that same behavior is fed into the police department over and over again, because usually the behavior is learned from your parent and, and, and it trickles down. So what I'm saying is, is that we need to do a better job of who we bring into the precinct and who is governing certain communities. If everybody comes from Long Island, there's no investment in that. The the police department today is much more diverse than it was, and there's many more city residents on the force. Yeah, but when you- And I'm not just saying that from statistics, but I'm saying that from from stories of being out, you know, in all these different areas. It's not enough. And when you spread that out across the city, it's very few officers in, in terms of diversity that, when they showed up in the park at five o'clock in the afternoon to shut down an anti-violence event that I was doing with little kids tap dancing and cotton candy and all of that, it was mainly white officers and uh, about two black officers and one Latino. And the black officer was really the one coming, uh, coming for me. I'm just saying that we have to be better as a city to find the right people, the right mix to serve a particular community. It's not just push them out into a community. People need, officers need to be aware of where they're going, what is the sentiment. And the culture, and the culture, the The culture. culture, The challenge, know the food, know the people's way of being, that women like me, we talk with our hands and put our hands on our hip. It does not mean that we're being aggressive. This is how we talk. So I think that knowing the culture and understanding the culture of the diverse communities we have is so key, so key. So we absolutely. Stop trying to put a Band-Aid on a gushing wound, and we have to deal with the things that have been traumatic for us. We can't ask. I know they were asking a couple of weeks ago, Aisha, we want you to walk with the new chief into the community and, um, and other offices. I'm not doing that. This is where I have to have credibility. We can't just walk, even though it wasn't those officers, but they represent the ones who have abused. You don't walk the abuser into the neighborhood and try to flaunt them. And co-sign, and give them a co-sign. You have to do the same thing you do with domestic violence. Either if the relationship is going to be prepared, repaired, then people have to get the help they need to do the to, to do, do that thing. Okay, we need to take a short break. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. When we come back, where are all these guns coming from? Stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. What up, what up, what up? This is Styles Peter Ghost, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people. Only on Hot 97. Yeah, Ghost told you so. Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers on Gun Violence. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. 
Joining me is Aisha Sekou. She's the founder and CEO of Street Corner Resources. Aisha, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me here. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a former NYPD lieutenant and a criminal justice professor. Uh, Dr. Darren Porcher, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And also joining us is Marky. He's the host of Black News 102. It's a YouTube news channel. He's also was uh, formerly incarcerated. Marky, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Marky, I want to start with you on this. Okay. When what you hear on the streets, when you are out there, and as you, especially as you're talking to the people that you know, they're just out living on the streets and making their money off the streets. Where are they saying these guns are coming from? I mean, the guns is already in a community. The guns been here for years. It's not like it's uh, uh, something that's new that's happening. The guns is coming from everywhere. They coming from the gun stores. They coming from out of town. Everyone knows where the guns are coming from. The police know where the guns are coming from. We're not making it in Harlem. We're not making them in Brooklyn. You know, they got to come from somewhere else, someone with a legal license in order to get the weapons. But I just want to piggyback off of what the sister said, um, because I was a victim of police brutality. And I know what it is to be out there and to have a police put his knee on my neck, put his knee in my back to be to say I can't breathe. I said I couldn't breathe years ago. Mm. Many of us young brothers said we couldn't breathe and the police continue to beat us and, and, and stomp us out and choke us even more. I guess is that uh, 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 they got this um, authority. Once you get this authority, you start to feel like it's us against them. And that's what's happening now. I think they need to go through a more psychological thing with the police officers when they're hiring them because they can act one way in front of you or act one way when they in the, in the office. But when they come on these streets, it's like they're just crazy. Thing. It's a whole different thing. Darren, what about that? What about that when our guests are talking about that, you know, the police can put on the smile and shake hands during the daytime. But then when it comes down to getting out on the streets, it's a very different thing. And I just want to give this some context, too, because... The stop and frisk has, has gone way, way down from what it was. Even before this whole COVID thing started, the number of people arrested was way down. Complaints, uh, police brutality complaints were showing a decline. But what do you see? What do you see this coming from? Well, one of the things I want to speak to what the gentleman mentioned in terms of the psychological component, all officers go through a psychological process prior to becoming members of the department. I think that that process has not been revolutionized accordingly. I think that we're using a system that's somewhat antiquated and it needs yeah. to be revitalized. Yeah. Now, in connection with um, you being the victim of a level of police use of force, I believe that police reform is the purview that we're looking for in connection with changing the dynamic of citizens being victimized by police. I was a lieutenant in the NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau. So in many instances, I investigated, investigated cases of misconduct. In no way, shape or form should an officer have the right to abuse a person that's being taken into custody. We are experiencing record low numbers of people that are being incarcerated as of lately. However, I don't think it adds up to the violence because we're clearly experiencing a meteoric rise in violence in the city. That doesn't mean that we need to, we can arrest our way out of the situation, but we need to look through the purview of taking these illegal weapons off of the street. One of the ways that these guns come into, come into the city of New York is through something we refer to as the iron pipeline. This is where people purchase guns through straw purchases. When I use the term straw purchase, as you mentioned earlier, sir, this is when someone that is like a front, like a front, right, a front person, right, right, they will they will legally acquire a firearm in a state like Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, 
and they will bring those guns into the city of New York and they'll sell them illegally. New York City has the toughest gun laws in the country next to Chicago and Los Angeles. But how is it that the cities that have the toughest gun laws in the country have the greatest propensity for gun violence? Right. So let's let's come back to that. But but Aisha, this this piece about these a lot of changes happened in January with the criminal justice reform. Some community, some people in the community have said to me, well, you know what, Lisa, the criminal justice system basically came to a halt. There have been hundreds of arrests of people for gun possession, but they're still on the street. So whoever they were beefing with, they're in fear. They have to get a gun because they're afraid of getting shot. And it just continues to escalate. What do you think about that? Well, you know, uh, I, I've heard a lot of talk about uh bail reform and criminal justice reform contributing to the increase in violence. I don't believe that that's the the sole reason for the increase. It may have some, we may see some repeat offenders, but I also think it has a lot to do with, there was not a plan to provide oversight for those people who were released during this time of COVID. So it is easy to point at that when no provision of oversight has been made. Usually when someone is re-entering society, even when it's a weak plan, a, a plan is made, this is where you're going to live. They make sure that they're not living in a house with other felons. They make sure that they're not going back into a place uh, that's unsafe. And even if they didn't do this perfectly, there was some plan and someone to make sure that they uh, had oversight. Me try to network them with some of the re-entry organizations. Right. So since COVID, there were no, there was no real plan, and a lot of folks were released without that. Some with no place to live. Start there. So someone who is put back into society without what they need, uh, what they do is they oftentimes will go back to what they know because they don't have any other measure to resort to. But I don't want to just blame it on those who are re-entering because I believe that that's a very very small. Uh, portion. I think that when uh, crime is happening and the the people who are supposed to oversee it in a certain way uh, or do something about it, look the other way and tell the fellas on the block because I'm on the street. We canvas. So this, I'm not sitting in this nice office every day. We are on the street. Right. No, I know. That's why we wanted you on the show. Yeah. And the brothers in, in the street will tell us, oh, the police said we could rock. We could do this. We could do that. And I, I get that. But we can't let criminal activity happen at the expense of the entire community. And that means that these cops come to work and they don't do their job, right? And then we see a spike and everybody's just watching the spike. You see the cookout and it goes from 50 people to 1,000 people because it's on Instagram. And you're saying, oh, well, the community's supposed to take care of that. We're not going up in that. And then you see cars double parked and people arguing. And, people and one, one, thing, one thing leads to another. But let me... Mark, Mark, the gun comes out. The gun comes out. Right. So Mark, one thing about uh, what um, uh, Brother Porcher said about the guns coming in. You know, I lived in the South. I went to school in the South. They have major gun shows. Major. You don't even need ID. It ain't even obtaining them legally. You can go in a gun show and buy a gun and put keep piling them in the back of your trunk and drive them up north from Alabama, Georgia, uh, all of these places. I, I was in Tallahassee when I first saw the gun show in Texas, Kansas, all of these places. So one of the things we have to do when people ask what could be done, we have to close what they call a gun show loophole, which means that people can just walk into a gun show and right. we're going to take a short break. When we come back, what are the solutions and are there solutions that work and can be implemented right now? 
We'll be right back. Hey, what up, y'all? This is Lloyd, the King of Hearts, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people only on Hot 9-7. You did. Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the surge in gun violence. Joining me is Aisha Seku. She's the founder and CEO of Street Corner Resources. Aisha, great to have you with us. Thank you, and I appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a former NYPD lieutenant and criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Marky. He's a host of Black News 102. It's a YouTube news channel, and he was also formerly incarcerated. Marky, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Marky, when you look at the situation the way it is now, how easy it is to get the guns into New York, how easy it is for them to just be here, what do you see as some of the solutions? Well, like I said earlier, I believe that there's no communication believe that between the police officers and between uh, the people in the community. I believe that uh, the solution is education. We got to educate one another. I think that we should have like an educational rally. Instead of just marching, we need to have just like an educational rally. We'll be teaching the young, the youth, about gun violence, about drugs, uh, uh, education and responsibility. Because I've done uh, uh, programs, uh, youth awareness programs, community awareness programs in the prison system. And we've helped hundreds of kids. And none of them kids ever picked up a guns, came into prison, anything. And it can happen with these kids out here today. It's just that we don't have no guidance. And the so-called OGs or the old heads, they're not really trying to teach the kids today. So I believe that if we came together as a whole, that uh, the solution is not hard. It's not hard. It's education. Darren, what do you what do you say? What do you see are some of the solutions? Well, the policing community relationship should be at the apex. One of the things that's oftentimes plagued police departments in the past and present and even possibly the future is implicit bias. Implicit bias is basically when an officer predetermines an assessment of an individual without having credible information to substantiate that. So that goes back to, let's say, officers stop questioning and possibly frisking people without knowledge of who this person is, what they represent, so to speak. And I give you the prototype of an African-American male standing at a particular location, dressed a certain way. That may drive the implicit bias for an officer to possibly stop questioning and even frisk that person. That's something that we want to eradicate. And that's something that comes with that policing community partnership, whereas the discourse between police officers and members in the community is something that's sound. And they're constantly engaging in information exchange as to what's happening in these communities. Therefore, that partnership in many ways can assist in eradicating gun violence. And I don't believe that that's really come to the forefront. Aisha, what about the, the, the police officers themselves, what Darren was talking about? with this implicit, implicit bias. Some of, the, some of the precincts, they have uh, veteran officers who are taking the new officers in, especially the ones that are coming from predominantly white communities that are not really used to urban culture, are not used to communities of color, basically uh, getting them acclimated to the culture almost so that they are not, in, so they can understand and see people for who they are as human beings. What do you think about that? Well, one, I wanna say, um, you know, thank you for bringing that into the discussion. 
I was part of the police department's implicit bias training. I think I took two days or three days where the facilitator herself said she had a problem with big black men. So that told me I was in a training with someone who wasn't really prepared to do the training. So she had her own biases and she was putting them out there in the training. So I'll just say that I did that in good faith, thinking that something good would come out of it. We have to have real training. We have real people who can do that. Uh, Naeem Akbar, uh, who has written books, Chains and Images of Psychological Slavery. We have other noted psychologists across the country that come from our community. This woman was uh, Caucasian, blonde hair, blue eyes, had no experience in the black community or Latino communities and was trying to give a training on how to deal with us. So I have a problem with that. It's already failed before it started. So I think that they need to see real people who can do the real trainings and we have trained intellectual professors that can do those kinds of trainings. So one, the training is already skewed from the beginning. It already failed from the beginning. The other part of that, when we talk about solutions and success, we have to look at real community engagement. And even as um, Brother Markey said, with the OGs, I don't want to say all of them are not doing it because we have right. some, some, some of them. Are. Brother Markey, I talked to so many pe brothers just like you. You just make me think about all of the brothers that say, and they don't always know how to enter and help. They need a place. And people like myself who run organizations have to allow a space where they can either be trained or get vetted and then be able to give some help, right, in whatever way that they fit in. I have a, a number of brothers that are doing that right now. We just hired a young man who did five years, and I've met him on the stoop, and we had just gotten a contract. I felt his spirit, and I said, let me give him a chance. It's a short contract, but then we can see how he works and then take him on. So we have to give people in our community, opportunities, and we have to look for the good as much as we can, but don't ignore the issues, but look for the good. So those that are contributing, we have to acknowledge that. The other thing is, is we have to, like I said earlier, um, address the mental health issues in our community and be real about it. Anyone who's been incarcerated for a long period of time, there is trauma and, and stress that comes from incarceration. We have to have places and go to people that understand that experience some brothers who have been formerly incarcerated are now licensed social workers right. and can give back and help the healing that needs to happen for these brothers so that they're not out here advising these young brothers to go into criminal activity and, and to also heal themselves. A lot of that is because that, they that's a great that's a great point too. Mark, in, in terms of what you say when when you are talking to the teens, when you are talking to the young men that are out on the streets that are in their 20s, that are in the gangs, that are out there living that life, what do you say to them to actually connect to them so they don't they don't turn to you and go, hey, man, you, you know, you that when you were involved, that was years ago. Everything's changed. Why should we listen to you? Like, how do you how do you reach them? Help us understand that. I mean, I guess I speak to them in language that they can understand because yeah. I was them before. So when I come to them, I'm speaking like I'm one of them. Like I was a gang member before. I used to bang. I know what it is to feel alone. I know what it is to feel that frustration or to have uh, no impulse control, to just jump out there when somebody say something. So when I'm speaking to them, I always ask them the, 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 the main question, and that is, why are you in the game? Why do you bang for? And not one of them can ever answer the question on why they bang. They say they bang for my hood. I bang for this. I bang for that. And I began to teach them that you bang. No, the reason why you're doing it is because you become desensitized. You don't look at your brother as your peers, as your brother. Say That's that. what happened to you. And I think that we got to be reprogrammed. And we could be reprogrammed. And I think when it comes to the police force, that 
they need to be trained on hand. They need to be took into our communities as on the, job. On the, on the, on the job. Yeah, they need to be on the streets and trained, you know, and not to be able to say a word, just stand there and see how to deal with these situations within the black community. Exactly. Darren, what about that? In, well, in, I, in terms of the, in terms, if you could, if you, if you were in charge of everything that the police department is doing in terms of trying to get this gun situation under control and really make real improvements with the community, what would you do? Well, it, it's bifurcated in two components. The first piece, as Mark mentioned, in terms of officers introducing themselves to the community, I think that part of the field training process needs to be expanded. The police department's, um, excuse me, the police academy traditionally runs for six months. I think that it needs to be expanded to maybe a year because there's a difference between training and education. When we think of training, there's already an iteration in place, whereas you, so going to a firearm, tra uh, firearm training, for example, an officer steps to the left, they bend their knees, and they fire a number of rounds. There's not really a decision-making process. You just focus on oh, that skill set. Right. However, when you look at the educational component, and I give you an example of someone that goes, for a, goes through a degree process. They take math courses. They take science courses in addition to criminal justice. But what the education does is it enhances the decision-making process. So I think that we need to include more of an educational process and not, and not training. And I think that in many ways will assist in reducing what officers deal, uh, how they deal with situations on a community level and better arm them with the information to troubleshoot the issues of gun violence. And I know it's a costly process, but I think that that is the best way to deal with this. And I haven't seen the funds introduced as a result. In, in order to do that, Aisha, do you think that this is, in terms of short-term solutions, you, you, um, your organization, Street Corner Resources, with the, you know, part of the, the cure violence, you take over the corners. What does that really do? Some people say, well, that's a, that's a nice feel-good type of thing. What does that really accomplish? Since we've been doing this since 2006, there's been these different versions. And, of course, the mayor's office has included uh, Occupy uh, the Corners as part of the toolbox. But the real Occupy the Corners, and I try to get people to understand this, is real community engagement. It's not about a, a feel-good thing. It's talking to the brothers who feel left out, who feel like nobody's looking out for them, much like what uh, Marky uh, just said, that they don't feel connected to the, to the bigger community. They feel like there's no jobs and no resources. We give them a place to come to in that circle, even if they don't, they don't have to stay in the circle. It's not about kumbaya in a circle. They pass by and they say, yo, ain't nobody helping us. You know, sometimes we catch a little hell. They say, nobody's helping us. And we say, well, you know what? Here's some jobs. Come and see us, you know, hit us up call us, whatever, and we want to be able to, to help you figure out what you need. What we try to do is go to the Occupy, to the corner, with resources. We don't wait and just say, come in the office. We'll have different jobs that are available, whether it's with us or not. We bring a counselor to that corner most of the time. He doesn't look like a counselor. He looks very much like how Mark is dressed right now, and we have two of them, so it's either one or the other. We have a mobile trauma unit that comes out. If those brothers need to just kind of talk with somebody, they're going through baby mama drama or having a hard time with finding a place, they can go on that unit and express themselves and talk and not have to act out. So we offer the resources right there. We have legal aid. We also have a music studio. We have the Peace Cafe. 
places where people can self-express. But the main thing is, is when they see the team on the street, they know that these are real people. These guys come just like Marky. They come, they blood, brim set, all of that. And so, and, and, and Crip and different gangs and different sets, and they speak the language. And when the brothers realize that, they know that they have somebody, they are credible messengers that they can really uh, talk to that understand what being in solitary confinement was like, that understand what being incarcerated and not, in, not having is like. And so that gives you a place of entry for a discussion about building that person back up so that they begin to heal and we have a better person in our community. So, so basically what I'm getting from all of you is that this, all three of you in different ways is the, the, the solutions to this gun violence, it's not an easy fix, but it has to start with communication. Mm-hmm. It has to start with everybody treating each other with respect. And it has to, has to start with just this, this cultural competency and having everybody um, kind of be on the same page. And that there's okay, no- well, we, we all treat each other. We see it as we treat each other with respect in the, the neighborhoods, but we feel that the police officers need to treat us with more respect need to stop looking at us like we're criminals, not stop driving by, creeping by, turning their lights off, looking at us on the corners like we doing something. A lot of times we might just be hanging out, you know, so we feel that and I feel that the officers need to just stop driving by. They need to pull over and get out and talk because we're not animals. You can talk to us. You know, you got to we human beings first before you, you a human being before you police officer. So I don't believe in that thing about, you know, the training and all this stuff and not to put their foot in their back. When you got your foot in my back and I say, I can't breathe, you're right. a human being. You know you hurting me. You know to stop all of that training and all that other stuff. I don't believe in none of that. I believe that you're a human being first and you know what you're doing. Well, sometimes they need to be reconnected with that and to do in the law. Darren, final word in terms of, uh, in terms of where we go from here, what do you think is going to happen? I think two-way communication is of optimum importance between the police and the community. I genuinely believe that we're going through a rough patch right now, but I think police reform will revolutionize the process moving forward into the next segment. And it's bad now, but there is light at the tunnel as a result. All right. Aisha, do you feel hopeful or do you feel like we've got a lot of work to do and the jury's still out? Let me tell you something, Lisa. I'm so happy that we are one that you called for this discussion. and in itself, it makes me feel hopeful. And so having Brother uh, Porter and uh, Brother Markey on, um, and that we're, we, we don't have to agree on everything. What we have to do is stay in conversation and stay in the work with the action. This is nice, and this should follow, be followed by continued action. So that makes me feel hopeful. The fact that a young man who was incarcerated for five years, this is his first job ever, got his first paycheck uh, last week, makes me hopeful when I saw the smile on his face and his enthusiasm about work. So I'm hopeful that peace is definitely uh, on the horizon and that we can create better community together. Everybody working together and staying in communication. All right, well, I wanna thank all of you for being part of this episode of Street Soldiers. Aisha Seku, great to have you with us. Thank you. Dr. Porter, thank you for joining us. Marky, great to have you on with us. And thank Thank you for listening to us and watching us on this episode of Street Soldiers, I'm Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace, love, and justice for all.